Let's look at the Word of God. Hear now the Word of God Almighty from the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders and ex, uh, of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Saphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and because it is your word, it is a gift to us. But we need you, O Holy Spirit, to open our minds and our hearts to receive this word, our minds to understand it, our hearts to choose to obey it. Grant us these gifts. Lord, open my mouth that my lips may declare your praise. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. Did you know that God keeps secrets? The sovereign God who created the universe and who specially created the human race has a habit of not telling us everything that we'd like to know. The Lord God keeps many, many things hidden within the counsel of his own will. Some of God's secrets are so huge that the Bible refers to these as mysteries. And while the scriptures reveal to mankind 
the big picture of his overriding plan that stretches from one end of human history to the other, most of the details he's kept to himself. God has hidden agendas, detailed plans known only to him. Our Heavenly Father is generous. He has given us his, his word, his Bible. He has showered his people with blessing. And he's provided us with everything that we need for life and godliness. And yet, he chooses to keep the details of his plan a secret from us. So what do you think of that? That God keeps secrets from us? Well, on a human level, usually when we learn that someone has kept something secret from us, we have one of two reactions to such a realization. Either we react in anticipation or we react with suspicion. Anticipation, of course, is the childlike reaction of someone who trusts the one who keeps the secret. Christmas presents and birthday surprises come gift-wrapped. It's a sign of good things to come. But as adults... Typically, we get suspicious when we learn somebody's been keeping a secret. We have learned not to trust the motives of those who keep secrets. And yet, the sovereign God who has revealed himself in the Bible does not keep secrets hidden from his people merely to toy with us. God gives good gifts to his children. And that's why Jesus commends childlike faith, because such faith responds to God's secrets with anticipation, full trust, and great wonder. The Old Testament prophet Daniel served five different kings during his captivity in Babylon. The first of those kings, Nebuchadnezzar, had a perplexing dream one night. You may recall the story. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed before they had a chance to give him an explanation. Tell me the dream. <laughs> and when they could not, the king threatened to put all of them to death. When Daniel heard of this, he asked to be taken to King Nebuchadnezzar, and after a season of prayer with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. And after Daniel finished telling the king the dream and explained its meaning, King Nebuchadnezzar fell down prostrate on the ground in worship. And he said, the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. In the passage we are focused on today, God reveals a portion of the mystery to his people, 
people who had been ripped out of the promised land and were taken captive in Babylon. God reveals to them in this letter a particular part of his secret plan that concerns their future. It is a plan to bring glory to himself and restoration to the ones whom he loves. Today our Heavenly Father intends to use this passage to help you and me here in this church service to understand more of who he is and what we as his disciples may expect of him. To help us understand this scripture, I will ask three questions that Reformation theologian John Calvin often used to form his own sermons. These questions are as follows. What does this passage actually say? What does this passage teach us about how we are to worship God and to submit to him? And thirdly, what does this passage teach us about how we are to relate to others? Let's begin with that first question. What does the passage itself actually say? In 586 BC, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar tears down the walls of Jerusalem, destroys the temple, takes its treasures, and forcibly takes most of the city's residents captive to his capital city to serve his empire. The best and the brightest among the defeated Jews are forcibly relocated to the beautiful, brutal city of Babylon. They are there to serve the Babylonian empire. And there in Babylon, they find themselves living among people whose culture and values and practices are very different from the values which Jehovah has given to his people. The Jews were in a situation that they didn't expect to be in and didn't want to be in. Why? Why had God allowed these devastating events to happen to them? The simple answer is that God's people had abandoned him. Moses prophesied this outcome a thousand years before in Deuteronomy 29.25. It is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord the God of their fathers, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. That's why. So now, now that they are stuck there in Babylon, how should these exiled Jews respond to this situation? What are they supposed to do? The Babylonians had a plan for them. (laughs) They said, hey, move into our city. Give up your spiritual identity as a people of Jehovah, for clearly he has failed you. You are to serve us now. Become like us, and thus you will make your lives here pleasant. There was a second group that had a plan. They were the false prophets among the exiles who said, Don't move into the city. Create a Jewish community outside the city and keep your spiritual identity. Keep yourself separate from the Babylonians. For now, if we repent and obey the Lord, he will take us back. God hadn't sent those prophets. 
Neither of those strategies was God's secret plan. So God instructs the prophet Jeremiah back in Jerusalem to write a letter to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. And here's what Jeremiah's letter says. The Lord God says, no, don't move into the city of Babylon and lose your spiritual identity as your captors want. Neither should you separate yourselves from the Babylonians out of fear of losing your spiritual distinctives. And before God tells them what they should do, he reveals a startling secret. He says to them, I did this. I brought you here to Babylon. It's right there in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The NIV translates this entire passage more the way that you and I would express it conversationally. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, either way, it's clear. The Lord God is saying, I did this. Me. This didn't just happen to you. I didn't lose control of the situation. This was my plan all along. So this is what I want you to do, my people, whom I cherish. Move into the city and keep your spiritual identity too. For I have brought you here. Change your expectations. Reorient your mindset. Embrace my plans for you. I remember a time in my own life, before I became a pastor, when I actually felt like the events of life had turned on me and I felt exiled away from my home and my life's ministry work. I had been forced out of my leadership position at the Christian Missionary Organization where I served, and I was required to move away from my home in Colorado, halfway across the country to California. We had been on the verge of a ministry breakout for the International Student Organization, which I had served for 10 years at that point, and suddenly, the ministry had been given into the hands of those who wanted to dismantle it. I ended up a thousand miles away with a debilitating illness, but under the care of my key supporting church. What was I to do? More important, what was I to think about God's part in all of this, about the way he allowed this devastation? It is within the story of the exiles in Babylon that God had a personal message for me about my own story. God didn't reveal all of his plans to the Jewish exiles, but he told them what to do next. I have a plan. Now, work with me here, okay? This was God's secret plan. Phase one, verse five. Build houses and settle down in the city. Phase two, verse seven. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. 
Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. Phase 3, verses 10 and following. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That will be the sign. When they seek him with all their heart, God's getting ready to move. There's the plan. Three simple steps. Settle down in this city. Contribute to the prosperity of the city. Turn your hearts toward me and seek me. The Lord says, trust me in this, for I will bring you home. And 70 years later, he did. You can read about the details of the exiles return to Jerusalem in the Old Testament books of Nehemiah and Ezra. Now, that's the abbreviated background story, uh, background to this story, but it gives us enough detail to ask today's second big question. What does this passage teach us about how we are to worship God? God has secret plans, mysteries. And when the Bible uses the word mystery, God is not saying that it's something that we can figure out if we try hard enough. He's saying it is, it is his plan to keep hidden until a time of his choosing. It's his secret. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae that God had given him a commission to reveal the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, that God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles now the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God chooses the time when he will uncover his secrets. God the Father chose to wait until after Jesus came to earth, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven before his gospel went out to the Gentiles. Yes, God reveals his secrets, both big and small, at times of his own choosing. So how do we worship God? How do we worship God? We, we truly worship God first when we wait for his timing. We Americans are an impatient culture. But the Bible makes it clear that God just doesn't do impatience. <laughs> Impatience can get in the way of a Christian's ability to submit to the secret plans of God. Long ago, God made a huge, long-range promise to Abram. In Genesis 12, he made this promise to Abram, then renamed Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Through Abraham's descendants, Jehovah was preparing the way for the Messiah, the Christ, to make his appearance on earth. The problem in that preparation was this. After King David and King Solomon reigned over Israel, the nation began a steady decline into idolatry. Even then, 
the Lord God made a secret plan to cleanse his chosen people. For he told Jeremiah about this hidden agenda. In chapter 2 of Jeremiah's prophecy, we see recounted a vision in what, that God gave him that we call the vision of the two basket of figs. Here's what it reads. The Lord showed me in this vision, behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but then the other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. After 70 years in Babylon, or three generations, the only the godly people among the exiles wanted to return to Jerusalem, wanted to rebuild their temple, wanted to reestablish the worship of Jehovah. The bad figs, well, they stayed behind. God didn't reveal all of his secret plan to the Jewish exiles, but he told them enough so that they understood that they were to wait for God's timing. We worship God when we wait for his timing. And secondly, we worship God by trusting his goodness, wisdom, and power. Jerry Bridges, in his fine book, Trusting God, writes, We have a tendency to doubt either God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, or God's love. Now, let me repeat that because I think this is really important. When you and I doubt what God is doing in our lives, we typically doubt one of three things about him. We have a tendency to doubt either God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, or God's love. We may doubt God's sovereignty, thinking that he's lost control of the situation. Or we may doubt God's wisdom, thinking he's made some really lousy choices where we're concerned. Or we may doubt God's love for us and think that he just really doesn't care enough about what I'm going through. Back when I felt exiled to California, I was doubting God's wisdom. To me, everything had been turned upside down. I thought some of my colleagues were conducting the work of our ministry and in doing so, we're blatantly ignoring some of God's precepts. How could he bless that? My heart attitude was like that of Jeremiah when he wrote, You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Yeah, Jeremiah, why? My personal spiritual breakthrough came when my pastor told me, John, I, th I think you're depressed. I didn't realize it, but it was true. I had been focused on the past 
and what had been lost. Oh, what had been lost. I had created a plan for God to follow that fit my idea of what justice looks like. But my idea was not God's longer range plan for that ministry organization, nor for my life personally. We worship God when we wait for his timing. We worship God by trusting his goodness, wisdom, and power, and we worship God by submitting to his purposes. And that's when we experience the grace of his love and provision. The Lord arranged the details of my life in such a way that I had no choice but to submit to his hidden plan. And along the way, I was learning how to worship God in a whole new way, trusting him more than I ever had before. Every step of the way, I was experiencing his promise to the exiles in verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, John, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That became a promise to me. Let's look at today's third big question. Not only what does the passage say itself, not only what does it tell us about how we are to worship God, but now as a consequence of that, what does this passage teach us about how we are to relate to others? Now, I think this passage teaches us three things about how we are to relate to one another in the church and how we are to relate to and interact with people in our community, outside our church. Three things. We should live expectantly, we should live respectfully, and we should live submissively. Now, what does it mean that we should live expectantly? Jeremiah became known as the weeping prophet. He wept when God's people scoffed at his law, and he wept when God sent them away into exile. It just broke Jeremiah's heart. You can read it in his prophecy. But these prophecies that God gave Jeremiah also contains some of the most awesome promises of God. <sighs> promises to God's people if they would turn away from their sin and obey him. Here's one from Jeremiah 33.3. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things which you have not known. Call to me, and I will tell you some of my secrets. Like children who trust their parents to give them good gifts at the right time, we must exercise childlike faith and trust in God's power, his wisdom, and his love, and choose to live with a heart of anticipation and expectancy. All right, that's not what I was expecting. What's God going to do? In Acts 17, 26, the Apostle Paul says something very interesting. 
that God himself determines the exact time in history when each one of us lives and the exact places where every person on earth is to live. You have a particular place in God's overall plan for human history. And he's working his plan in your life. Therefore, we should live expectantly. <laughs> then what does it mean that we should live respectfully? I believe this points to the fact that the Bible pushes us to devote ourselves to the prosperity of others in our city, to bless them, because if they prosper, God's plan is that you will prosper too. When I was forced to leave my home, when I felt I had been thrown under the bus by my colleagues, God gave me a chance to work for the prosperity of the place where he had exiled me. And remarkably, in those two years, largely through my leadership, the people of my home church there and I began an innovative outreach to Japanese college students that still continues to this day some 35 years later. Our Heavenly Father wants us to adopt an attitude of respect and grace toward those who are not Christian. The Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, his first letter, instructs all Christians to interact with non-Christians with a demeanor of gentleness and respect, which over time creates a thirst for the gospel in some of them. Always being prepared, he writes, to answer questions from anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You know, you can't give answers unless somehow you first generate questions. And our interaction with people should be the kind of relationship and serving them that makes them look at us and say, what is it about you that's so different? Move into the city, seek its peace, and prosperity, and keep your spiritual identity. We should live expectantly, we should live respectfully, and then we should live submissively. In childlike faith, we should choose to trust God, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his love. You know, sometimes the worst thing that God can do for us is to answer our prayers the way we pray them. <laughs> to give us exactly what we ask for. His hidden plans are always better. After my two years in exile, I was transformed and humbled as God powerfully directed the details of those two years and blessed me beyond what I could think or imagine. I was restored to my ministry leadership position back in Colorado. I was restored to health, free of the debilitating illness. And not only did I regain my health, but my nine-year-old daughter 
A doctor in Los Angeles detected a congenital kidney condition which could have crippled her health for the rest of her life. None of our friends, our doctors in Colorado, had picked up on this. God moved us a thousand miles away to give us a local doctor who was born in India who said, I do not like this. And she referred us to a specialist, a surgeon at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles who performed a very specialized procedure which changed Heather's future. She is now a pastor's wife and the mother of four children she likely never would have had. Everyone in our family was blessed. (laughs) We wept when we had to go to California, and we wept when we had to return home. (laughs) My friends, I didn't know to ask for these blessings. My prayers didn't include anything like this. But my heavenly father had hidden plans for me that he kept secret from me until the right time. I treasure that promise to the exiles from Jerusalem, which now for me carries great personal meaning. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. My friends, it is my prayer today that in the midst of whatever disappoints you, whatever threatens you, that you would realize afresh the peace and confidence which your heavenly Father has wrapped up like a gift waiting for you to open it. Let me leave you with this promise from the opening words of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter, the secret place of the Almighty, of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Oh, Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Open your word to our minds and our hearts in such a practical way that we will understand what we are to do, the choices we are to make, the direction we are to follow, And teach our hearts wisdom and humility that we will recognize how desperately we need you and how awesomely overpowering is your love for us. This we pray in the name of our Savior who gave himself for us to the Lord Jesus Christ.